Okay, well, there are, uh, there's two ways, two ways to live, two ways of life that, that we can build, build our entire lives on. There's, there's two ways to live our lives, two different mindsets that we cultivate, two different ways of living that we really essentially build our, build our whole life on. Every choice that we make, every decision that we choose ultimately flows from one of these two places. And we've been looking at the Burke, the Burke, the Burke, we've been looking at the book, I don't know what a Burke is, but we've been looking at the book of 1 John, and this is a letter where John writes to a church, and he, he talks to them, and he contrasts multiple different things, comparing them, and saying that they cannot exist together. So he talks about, spiritually speaking, light and dark cannot exist together. He says that that uh, a love for God and yet hatred for people in his family cannot coexist together. He talks about knowing God and living a life of disobedience, that that cannot coexist together. And then tonight, we're going to look at this. John says that there's not just two ways to live, but there's two ways to love. And that ultimately, all of life comes down to either love of God or love of the world. And that those two things cannot exist together. That love of God and love of the world cannot exist together, but that all of our lives, each person in this room, myself included, everybody, we will build our lives on one of those foundations, either love of God or love of the world. So let's look at, uh, at what John says. This is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and we're just looking at a few verses tonight. And here's what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And here's what I have to begin with. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Because when Christians hear this idea of do not love the world, there can be a lot of confusion about that. Because there's other places in the Bible that say God so loved the world. There's places that talk about how God wants us to care for the world. And there's places that talk about we're supposed to love people in the world. So, so first let's just say what this doesn't mean. Because many Christians have an idea when they hear this, do not love the world, and can take that in a couple different ways. It gets expressed if it's misunderstood. One can be, let's just pull out of the world. So, Centuries ago, this is where you had people building monasteries that was, hey, let's remove ourselves from the world. It's dirty. It's sinful. Let's create our own community here and our own rhythms here. And we'll focus on being holy and we'll focus on being outside of the world. We're not supposed to love it. So let's pull out of it. Or now this gets expressed in just disengaging from the world around us. Or Christians develop their own world. So we're not supposed to love this world. Well, let's just develop a Christian world. This is where you get all sorts of weird Christian phrases and t-shirts and, I mean, just everything has to have a Christian substitute. So, you got YouTube, we got GodTube, and you've got, you've got Spider-Man, and we've got Bible-Man, and you've got uh, Facebook, and we've got Faithbook, and you've got Whole Foods, and we've got Holy Foods. And I'm not making any of that up, but it just gets ridiculous that it's just we've got to develop a whole separate Christian world because we're not supposed to love this world. Or it can get expressed in fighting against the world. So we're not going to love the world, so let's fight against the world. Let's take back America. And this takes all these verses about the Old Testament and about Israel in the Old Testament and applies them to America and boycott things and just a a posture of defending and fighting against the world because we're not supposed to love it, so let's fight it. Or it can just be ignoring the world. And sometimes this is where you see that Christians are focused on the spiritual, but maybe not the physical. So, man, I'll, I'll help uh, someone spiritually and talk to them about Jesus, but who cares about their needs? Or, you know, we'll, we'll care about spiritual things, but who cares about the environment? Let's litter for Jesus. It's all going to burn anyway. Um, and none of that is what John intended when he said, do not love the world. Because we are supposed to care for the world. We are supposed to treat people with dignity and value and worth. We are supposed to engage in the various cultural gifts that God has given people in this earth. We are supposed to do those things. So then what does John mean by world? What, what, is, what is the world? What is the world? Well, the world is a whole way of living that believes the world is all there is. It's a whole way of thinking, feeling, acting out 
that operates as if this world is all that there is. That says the here and now is all that there is. So invest in the world, get your fill of the world, get as much as you can out of the world because this is all that there is. And Christians believe that there's the physical and there's the spiritual and there's the eternal. So it's not just the here and now. It's not just the physical things. That God will one day redeem this world, both spiritually and physically. But this world is not all there is. It's not just the here and now. That it's not just this world. So what does love of world look like? What does it look like to love the world? Well, ultimately, if we love the world, it's building the world around ourselves. So if this world is all there is, get your fill of it, soak it all up, you only live once, do what you can, this world is it, and we build it then around ourselves. We build the world around ourselves and basically treat the world like one giant pinata. And we want to get as much as we can out of it. We want to get as much as we can. So life is learning to get the fastest swing and the biggest bat and the best technique and the quickest jump on the candy. And that's life. It's get your fill. Get what you can out of life right now because this is all there is. And sometimes I've talked with some of you or just other Christians that wonder, man, I don't understand. These people are not Christians, but they seem to have a lot of joy in their life and a lot's going well for them in their life. And I don't get that because I'm a Christian and life's not going well for me. I don't, I don't understand. But, I mean, if, if you're living in such a way that you're trying to get your fill of the world, sometimes that'll lead to disappointment. Sometimes it'll lead to destruction. But it can also lead to, man, I'm hitting the pinata for all it's worth and, and I'm eating a lot of candy. But the way that we operate in the world if we believe that the world is all there is, is get your fill because you don't know when it's going to end. You've only got one life here. And this, this kind of expresses itself in a few different mindsets. So the first is this. Because the world is all there is, just do what you want. This world is all there is, so do what you want. Be happy. Follow your heart. Enjoy the time you've got. You only live once. Just do what you want to do. And you see this, especially in the millennial generation, that there's often a constant mobility. So job to job to job, relationship to relationship to relationship, often city to city to city of, man, I just, I've got to be happy. I've got to do whatever I can to get the next thing. And if I'm not happy right now, then I've got to go to the next thing. Because I, man, this world is all there is. So I need to just do what I want. And this is where you see kind of the mentalities of carpe diem, seize the day, or YOLO, you only live once, and man, just do whatever you want. Don't think about right, don't think about wrong, don't think about good, don't think about bad, don't think about consequences, don't think about wisdom or propriety or responsibility, just soak it all in. Enjoy, live in the moment. You only have a handful of moments, so go all out. Just do whatever feels good, be free, be crazy. I mean, that's often this idea that gets expressed. And literally, I know that many of you probably don't walk around saying YOLO, but maybe some of you do. But there's thousands and thousands of those posts on Twitter every day. Thousands of them that are tagged with the idea of YOLO, you only live once. And while maybe you don't say that, I think that mentality is expressed well in the things we do. So here's a couple of tweets over the last few days that I pulled up. Watching the seagulls outside of my window eat worms instead of studying. YOLO. You only live once. Officially decided to wear wear sweatpants to homecoming. YOLO. I love this one. 94 miles an hour on Highway 94 with the pops because we YOLO hard. (laughs) These guys are serious about it. Literally not doing anything besides sitting on my couch and eating cheesecake until practice tomorrow. Don't even feel guilty. YOLO. Payday today, a.k.a. retail therapy till I'm broke again. YOLO, pound, whatever. Don't even need an R, because YOLO. And this is my favorite. Drinking alcohol before 10 a.m. makes you a pirate, not an alcoholic. Guess I'm going to be a pirate tomorrow. YOLO. (laughs) It's ridiculous, and we laugh at that, but those express well the idea of, you don't have to think about it. Just do what you want. Do what you want to do. Just do whatever you want to do. The world is all there is. Life is short. Just do what you want to do. And I love it because when I was looking at this, there's a fake Twitter account that just kind of makes fun of this whole mentality. 
And I'll show you some of these. Because this, I think, shows how bizarre this is by making fun of it. So here we go. Walking into SeaWorld with a fishing pole. YOLO. (laughs) Taking my pet rock to the vet. You only live once. Becoming a waiter so I can put fake engagement rings in women's drinks on Valentine's Day. (laughs) YOLO. I told that to my wife, and she's like, oh, that's so mean. She doesn't get it. You only live once, baby. Here's the next one. Making an old person help me cross the street. YOLO. Lifting up a random person's child and singing, it's the circle of life. YOLO. It's the Lion King there. Giving my leg hair cornrows. I hope that's a a guy. YOLO. Or this final one here. Giving a baby a wedgie. YOLO. (laughs) Oh, man. So, I mean, there's just this whole idea, and we we can laugh at that, and we think it's bizarre, and many of you probably don't say YOLO, and you probably don't tweet, but but still, that mentality we can live with, that this world's all there is, so just do what you want. Live in the moment. You only live... I mean, have you ever said that? You only live once, so dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever it is. I mean, that's that mentality. Or here's another one. Because the world is all there is, make it heaven. And this is where we look at this earth, and if, and most, I mean, statistically, most people in the world believe there's some sort of afterlife, believe there's a heaven. If you're a Christian, then you definitely believe that. So I'm not saying confessionally what you believe, but practically what we believe, how we live, if we love the world, is, man, this world is all there is, so make it heaven. There's nothing else beyond, so this has to be heaven. This has to be the best existence possible. This has to be the best place possible. I've I've got to make it heaven on earth. I've got to build my kingdom here. And this is where you see people that go to school, get an education. That way you can get a good job, so you can get money, so you can then build your kingdom here on earth. You can build your kingdom here on earth. And all of life is geared toward retirement where we can have a wonderful kingdom on earth or we can just live in the kingdom now. We can build our castle. We can, we can have money so we can have servants to serve us in our kingdom and we can buy things for our kingdom and arrange things in our kingdom. So it's heaven on earth. And that's, we pour our lives out to build heaven on earth. This can be internally Where it's, man, this is the only life I got, so I want to be the best person I can be here. Physically, I want to be in the best shape possible. This is the only life I have, intellectually, with education, where we're all focused on, man, this world has got to be as good as it gets. I want to build heaven here on earth, build my kingdom here on earth, because this is it. Often, this gets expressed in, in some of these things here. So, security. This world is all there is. And this is it. Man, I want to build a kingdom that's safe and secure. Maybe that's saving a lot of money so that nothing goes wrong and it's safe and it's secure. Or maybe it's not, not maybe doing anything that's dangerous or trying to avoid suffering as much as possible. And I'm not saying don't wear a seatbelt or be dumb and run into traffic. But sometimes God would call us into places that are unsafe. Sometimes God would call us to sacrifice. Sometimes God would call us to to move into a neighborhood that's not very safe. Sometimes he would call us to, to into suffering. But if we're building a life that is, I want to be secure, I want to be safe, I want my kingdom to be secure, or comfort, and this is, man, this world is all there is, so my heaven, my kingdom, oh, I just want to wear sweatpants and eat Cheetos, you know, I mean, just want it to be safe and comfortable so I can buy things and have cushy things and just everything in my kingdom because this is heaven. This is heaven. I want it to be as comfortable as possible. Sometimes with this, you see Christians where they completely pull out of other relationships that make them uncomfortable or people that don't know God because, man, that's going to be uncomfortable relationally or let's develop our own Christian subculture where it's just going to be comfortable. Often you see this with Christians that leave the cities. There's nothing wrong with living in the suburbs, but a lot of times Christians exit the cities disproportionately. If you look at the cities, the statistics, there's way more people that don't know Jesus in the cities, and all the Christians flee to the suburbs. They go live in the suburbs, that way they can have bigger space and a bigger yard. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it can be if it's, I'm pursuing comfort. 
Because sometimes God would call us into places that are more expensive or are uncomfortable or where we've got to make sacrifices because there's a lot of people there, a lot of needs there, a lot of spiritual and physical needs in places. But we can just build our kingdom and want it to be as comfortable as possible. Or recreation. Recreation, we play and play, and whether this is passive, movies, music, shows, just passive entertainment, or active with sports, and Denver's a great place for this. With, I mean, you can be consumed with diversions for the rest of your life here in Denver. There's tons to do. But we can say, man, if this world is all there is, it's got to be as fun as possible. It's gotta, i got to live it up in the moment, because this is all I've got. This is my kingdom. This is my heaven. Or family. Family's not a bad thing, man. We got families here. We want more families here. We want more babies here. We want more marriages. I mean, we want family. Family's great. But family be- can become the center of somebody's world. And you see this when sometimes parents just get uh, a new baby and they begin to build their entire lives around the, the baby and pull out of community. Or couples that just get married, sometimes they do the same thing. Or sometimes couples with uh, teenage children build all their lives around the activities. And I was even looking on Facebook today and somebody posted, man, my children are my everything. Which sounds nice, but... That's not what it's called to be. If we build our lives around family, family's a good thing. It's a good thing. But it's supposed to be a second thing, not a, not a first thing. We're supposed to build our lives around God, not around family. Sometimes what you see that happen with this is when kids get older, whether that's high school or graduate, and maybe some of you have experienced this, then parents, if they've built their life around their family, and for those of you that are parents, this is a, a good thing to remember, and their kids start to not make decisions that they want them to make or do things that they don't want them to do, maybe that are good things. So I want you to go to this, this college, but they go to this college instead. Or I want you to marry this person, but they marry this person instead. So I'm not, I'm not talking about bad things, but kids begin to make decisions and the parents are like, man, I, you are my world. I gave everything to you. How could you do this to me? Or parents get divorced often when kids graduate and leave the home because they've been the focus of everything. And if you build your life around family... That's not what God intends. Or the idea of bucket list, which is, um, you know, uh, kick the bucket is a euphemism for death. So people have these lists, which is really popular right now. And there's whole websites you can go on and, and track. Here's the things I want to do before I die. So this world is all there is. Man, I just want to do as much as I can. I just want to do everything I want to do before I die. If this world is it. I want to make it heaven by just doing everything I can do. I'm not saying it's bad to have a list of things you want to do, but you can build your life where, I mean, just think about it. Why do we have a bucket list? Just because you want to have some joy in things? Or is it because, man, before I die, I have got to do these things. Here's some things I saw in the bucket lists. I want to ride an ostrich. This is from the website. And life, life's going to end. I got to get on the bird, okay? Or this. Um, Whoops. Road trip, coast to coast. So, hey, this world is all there is, so I want to see it. I want to see the whole thing. Or hold a huge spider. I don't know if that's on anyone's list in this room. It's definitely not on my wife's list. That I want to hold a huge spider before I die. Or meet Mike Tyson. Maybe that's the day you'll die, but I want to meet Mike Tyson before I die. Or I love this one. Eat Spam. And these are, these are, by the way, these are the most popular ones. These are the features. So there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have all these things. So before I die, I know I can die in peace if I've eaten meat from a can. You know, I mean, that's like, okay, we've, we've settled a little low, I think, here. Or collect a jar of dirt from every state. So before I go six feet underground, I want to have some of the ground with me. I want to collect dirt. We've got high ambitions as a society here. Sorry if these are any of your lists that, I, that I've found. Uh, or draw funny faces on all the eggs in my fridge. Like, wait, I can't die yet, God. I've got to draw funny faces on eggs. Or this one, watch someone give birth. And I love this one because I looked on it a little bit, and it didn't say watch my daughter give birth or watch a family member give birth. It just said watch someone. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter who, just somebody. So some of you pregnant ladies, if some guy pops up in the hospital and you're like, what are you doing? Hey, it's okay. It's on my bucket list. I just want to watch you give birth. Um, 
Or this one, meet Chuck Norris. This is my favorite. I want to meet Chuck Norris before I die. And it's got some of these old Chuck Norris jokes, if you've heard some of these, like Chuck Norris can win a game of Connect Four in three moves. Or Chuck Norris is the real reason Waldo is hiding. Chuck Norris can judge a book by its cover. Or I like this one too. When the boogeyman goes to sleep every night, he checks his closet for Chuck Norris. <laughs> Silly. But I want to combine some of these on my bucket list. Like I want to ride an ostrich with Mike Tyson or I want to watch Chuck Norris give birth because, you know, he can do it. He can, he can do anything. <laughs> but this whole mindset is, man, let's make the world as best as we can make it. Let's make it heaven on earth. Here's another one. Because the world is all there is, make a difference. Is it bad to make a difference? No, it's not bad. But sometimes this gets expressed in an idea that says, man, this world is it, so leave it a better place for your kids. Or this world is it, so it's our home and there's a hyper-environmentalism. I think it's good to, to take care of the earth, but there's this hyper. Man, this world is it. This world is all there is, so we've got to do as much as we can in this world for this world. And all of these things... All of these things aren't bad, okay? Some of them are, but not all. I mean, I listed several things that are good things, but here's what often happens. We build our lives on a love of the world, and then we try to fit God in somewhere. So we build our lives on family or comfort or security or or only living once or making it heaven or building our kingdom or doing our... we, We build our lives around those things, And then we try to fit God somewhere in what's left. But that wasn't our starting point. Our foundation was love of the world. And then we try to fit God in, and what do you find? I mean, sometimes it's like, man, I don't don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have relational bandwidth. I mean, it's because we've built our lives with a starting point of the world, not with a starting point of God. So what happens when we love the world? What happens when we love the world? Because John says, don't love the world. So what is it that then happens when we love the world? Here's some things that happen when we build our lives on a love for the world. We can become judgmental. We can look at other people as lesser or as bad people because here's what happens. If you look at the world and you believe that's all there is functionally, I'm not saying theologically what you believe necessarily, But functionally, if you're operating as if this world is all there is, it's really easy to look down on other people because you're building your kingdom here. You're pouring your investment and your time and your money and your efforts into building a heaven on earth, into building a kingdom on earth. And if other people don't share that same version, it's really easy to look down from your heaven on them and think less of them. So here's an example. If if your whole life is let's just have fun and do what you want and go crazy and live in the moment and, and life is short, so go all out, somebody else can look at you and go, man, you're, you're wasting your life. We've only got one life to live. We've only got one life. Make it count, which is still just a world love standpoint, but judging that one. Or, or the reverse happens. If you're really serious and, and you're pouring all your time and your effort into making a difference or making things happen or education or being serious about life because you think this world is all there is and somebody else can be like, man, chill out. We've only got one life to live. Enjoy this life. You only live once. And we judge each other from these opposite streams of these opposite kingdoms that we're prizing, that we're building because you have to do that. If you're pouring your time and your energy into building this kingdom, it becomes an identity for you. It becomes a salvation for you. It becomes the whole existence of life for you. So it's easy, and you have to judge other people if they don't share that, if they don't prize it and value it like you do. Or monotony, go through life and just sometimes have a chronic boredom. Maybe just look at life and it's just, man, just kind of going through the motions and just kind of apathetic and... Because there's no bigger story to connect to. There's no grander narrative to connect to. There's, there's no bigger purpose. So we can just be bored or depression. This is where we see you know, antidepressants through the roof in our country. Because if this world is all there is, maybe it's an existential crisis of just, you just feel the meaninglessness of everything. But maybe it's depression because you're trying to build this world and it's not going the way you want it to go. You're trying to build this heaven. You're trying to build this kingdom and it's not going how you want it to go. And if this is all there is, that's not just sad. It's crushing. It's devastating. Or worry. 
this world is all there is, and if this is your kingdom that you're building, then you're always going to be worried that something's going to go wrong with it. If this is it, then it's going to be like a really fragile balloon, and you feel like anything could pop it. So you're going to be really worried to, to keep your kingdom safe, to keep your heaven safe, or anger or bitterness. Man, if somebody rips you off or someone takes something from you or you get mistreated or, or, somebody, or you lose something that you really wanted, if that's not just things in life, but it's your kingdom, that's an assault on your heaven. It's not just, yeah, somebody ripped me off. Yeah, somebody mistreated me. Yeah, somebody did something they shouldn't have done. Yeah, I didn't get that job. Yeah, I lost something that was important to me. But you can get really angry if that's your kingdom, if that's all there is. See, if this world is all there is, it leads to all these different things. So then why is it that we fall in love with the world? Because if you're a Christian, you know that John, what he says here, don't love the world, or you know we're supposed to love God and not to love the world. But why do we fall in love with the world? Why do we fall in love with the world? You ever see a, you ever see a really beautiful woman with, a, with an ugly an ugly husband, don't, don't nudge your husband's ladies if, uh, if, <laughs> if you're like, yeah, I've seen that. But you ever, you ever see that? There's always reasons that we fall in love with what we shouldn't. There's always reasons. There's always some reason that we're drawn to that which we shouldn't be. Somebody once said that the greatest danger facing the church in America is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. And I think that's true. I think that's true. Because it's really easy to fall in love with the world. Everything in the world, and I think we can all agree on this, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whatever you believe, I think we can all agree on this, that the world is built to get us to love it. The world is built to draw in our affections. All the time we're hearing appeals for our heart. All the time we're being wooed. All the time we're being drawn in by the world. Whether that's advertising or marketing or whatever it is, we're always being drawn in. And it's really easy to love the world. It's really easy to love the world. And John gives us three different things that he says are the common ways the world woos our heart. Three different things that he says are the common temptations that we will face that will draw us in to the world. And here's, here's what they are. He calls them, I read them earlier, but he calls them the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And even just saying that, doesn't that sound like things you've heard? Doesn't that sound like a commercial? Like you turn on the TV and it says, you can have the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Volkswagen. You know, or something. I mean, it's Visa. You know, I mean, I mean, it sounds like an appeal that we've heard. And we, a lot of times we look at the Bible and think, ah, this is an outdated book. And what do they know? And that was thousands of years ago that, that that was written. And, you know, what, what, what do they know? And yet, man, it's very timely because that's the message that we hear all the time, that the world is appealing to us all the time, saying, you need to get everything you can. Get your fill now. Get it immediately and get as much of it as you can because this world is it. This world is all there is. So soak it up, get as much as you can. And the word that he uses there, the desires of the flesh, or if you have an NIV Bible, it says the lusts of the flesh. That literally means an over-desire. So this is in our life when something that's a lesser thing becomes an ultimate thing. This is when something that is a, as I said earlier, something's a second thing, but we make it a first thing. Something becomes not just a desire that we have, a want that we have, but it becomes a need that we have. It becomes a love. It becomes something that rules us and drives us, that we build our life upon. It's no longer just a normal desire for physical things or or to look at things. It becomes something that we are wooed by and our hearts find love in. So let's look at these three things. First, is the desires of the flesh. And this is what physically feels good. So this can be many things, but let's talk about a few of them. I mean, this can be food and drink and sex and play and what physically feels good that we're drawn in by. So think about food. Is it wrong to want to eat food? Is it wrong to have a desire for food? No, of course not. But when food becomes something 
that's not just something in our life, but something we live for. Food or the absence of food that we use to handle our life and control our life. It's the way we learn to deal with life. It's where we go for comfort or satisfaction or it's what we use to, to manage stress. When it becomes something that we use to actually function in life, then we, we don't just eat to live, but we live to eat and it's destructive. Or think about, think about play. I mean, in our, in our world now, we spend billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars on, ed, on entertainment and leisure and tourism and all of these things, more than any time in the history of the world. I mean, we are throwing tons and tons and tons of dollars into this stuff. And I'm not saying that's bad, but it's when it's an over-desire. And here's what happens. A lot of times, the reason we're pouring so much money into leisure and entertainment is because, this isn't the only reason, but because we're unfulfilled in our jobs. Because what happens is, a lot of times we choose a career, we choose a job based on a love of the world. We choose a job based on what it's going to make me look like, what kind of status it's going to give me, what kind of financial success it's going to give me because, so I can build my kingdom. Instead of choosing a job based on loving people, which would be, man, how has God made me that I could best use my gifts and my skills to, to make a contribution in the world? How has God made me that I could best serve in the world? Because if you do that, you'll be more fulfilled in your job. But if you choose a job based on love of the world, sometimes it's just, we've got to live for the weekend. We've got to live for the weekend, which is when you see, man, so entertainment and leisure and pleasure, we spend tons of money. Or think about another physical desire, sex. Sex is something God made. And if you think about sex from a Christian perspective, from an eternal perspective, then here's, here's what God made sex for. God made sex as an analogy to show his love for us. So one day in eternity, we'll have perfect relationship with God, perfect connection with God. Where he makes himself, I mean, think about when sex is done right. You're made completely available to someone, completely vulnerable with someone. They see you for who you are. There's intimate connection there. God says all of that is an analogy of what he designed our relationship with him to be like. That if we connect sex to the eternal, that's what it's meant to show. So it makes sense then. It makes sense of two things. It, it, it helps us understand how to use sex and it shows a less importance that we put on sex. Because if we understand how to use it rightly, we'll see, okay, if that's what it's supposed to be showing, if that's why God designed it, then God tells us sex is supposed to be used within the confines of marriage. But why? I mean, sometimes that doesn't really make sense. Why? Well, because if God says, I love you, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely committed to you. I give myself to you 100%. I give you relationship with me 100%. It makes sense then that he wouldn't say, well, but I don't really care who you worship. You can go worship any God. You can go and be relationship with any God. You can go do whatever you want with any God. No, he says, I want to have a permanent, exclusive, absolutely committed relationship with you. And sex is supposed to mirror that. A permanent, exclusive, committed relationship where the physical is just a sign of everything else. It then also shows us that it's not as important. See, if you're a Christian and you're not having sex right now, that's okay. Because it's not, man, you've got to get what you can right now because this world is all there is. That's just, a, that's just a pointer to the ultimate connection and intimacy we'll have with God one day. See, all these things, if we think about them from an eternal perspective and not just a world perspective, we can use them the right way. We can begin to not make them first things, but second things. Not ultimate things, but lesser things. Not God things, but good things. There puts it in its proper place, in its proper value in our life. So that's the desires of the flesh. Here's the next one, the desires of the eyes. And the desires of the eyes has to do with appearance, what looks good. Desires of the eyes is where you're concentrated and focused on what looks good. So maybe that's status or your body figure or it's being with people that look good or having possessions that look good. I mean, think about how, how many times does what you see control you? How many times does what you see depend on how your decisions are made and who you hang out with or who you want to be or what you want to be like? How much does your visual stimuli control and affect who you are and what you're doing with your life? 
Maybe you go, man, it's not just I want to look good, but I have to look good. And I've got to be with people that look good. And I've got to be friends with people that look good because then they'll make me look good. And I've got to make sure that everything looks good. And our whole marketing industry is built around this. I mean, everything in marketing, even if the trends in design right now, whether that's web design or print design, it's even when you've seen Facebook or things like that change their home pages and design, everything is built on the visual. Everything is built on images. The whole marketing industry wants to show you as much visual information as possible to draw you in. This is why it doesn't matter if it's shampoo or cars or Doritos that everything wants to associate itself with beauty, something that's visually pleasing, whether it's a visually pleasing place, the mountains or a beach or a visually beautiful person. This is why we have models, right? Why else would we have models? But to show, look, buy this product because it's associated with beauty. You really see this in the Super Bowl, I mean, really all year, but I mean, I feel like it's always a Doritos commercial where there's some beautiful, gorgeous model with a bag of Doritos. And that's not because that's the the target market for Doritos, right? I mean, you don't ever see on the catwalk some lady walking down, you know, eating Doritos and licking her fingers and wiping it on her Gucci dress. I mean, it's not, it doesn't happen. But it's because they want to say, look, This product is associated with beauty. They don't want to show the the big fat white guy rubbing it on his wife beater, you know, and eating his bag of Doritos. They want to show, look, this swimsuit model eats Doritos, you know, the desires of the eyes. And everything draws in. That's why there's window shopping. You go to the mall, everybody's got their, their front display, right? It doesn't matter if it's a watch or an iPhone or mannequin to draw you in, to see, to look to then purchase, to make decisions based on the desires of the eyes. That's why if you're in the checkout, at the supermarket, at the store, what's there in the checkout? Man, there's still more chances for you to see things. And it's always things you don't need, right? It's not because they want to help you. It's not like, hey, just, just in case you forgot your veggies, we've got some cucumbers in the checkout line. No, it's always some magazine about you know, Kardashians, baby's actually an alien, or it's beef jerky, or M&M. I mean, it's always something, just so you see it, and then go, I need that. I need that. The whole industry is built on visually stimulating you to draw you in. And here's the thing, it never actually delivers. It never gives you what it promises it'll give you. It draws us in with the visual, but it never gives you what it promises it will give you. And here's, I think, a good example of that. With food, you see this. So I don't know if you guys have seen this before, but these are pictures of fast food compared to the real thing. And this, I think, shows how it, we're promised something visually and it's never actually what it is. So this is the Nachos Bel Grande from Taco Bell. Looks beautiful. And then this is, you know, what it looks like when it comes out. And, and then, uh, you know, this, I love this. this. This is a breakfast burrito. It looks perfectly folded by a Latina grandma that made it perfectly and put the eggs in there from the chickens in the back. And, you know, this, that just looks like a cyst or something. And then this is a Whopper Junior, right? Where this thing's like, I mean, look at that. Thing's huge. And this thing can like fit in your pocket. I mean, it's, that's the Whopper Junior, or here's the, the, the normal Whopper, which looks like, man, you made it on the 4th of July, best barbecue ever, and this looks like roadkill, you know, squirrel burger or something. And they even, it even says, slightly fluffed up. Like, he even tried to fluff it up. Or this, I love this. And I, I love these from Taco Bell. But look, I mean, that thing is half beef. That thing's half beef on the left. That is packed. That's a protein like power thing that you could have with fresh grated cheese on the top of it. That meat looks like a Jenga game. It was stacked in there perfectly. And this is like the cheese is dying. You know, some teenager made that. I mean, it's just not attractive. Or this, this is my favorite because I bought these all the time. And look at, I mean, look at this. These are the tacos from Jack in the Box. Those look organic. I mean, that looks like a balanced meal. There's like a whole salad in there. There's a piece of cheese. There's a nice layer of beef on the bottom. I mean, those look gorgeous, organic, fresh picked. And those things, I mean, if you've gotten them, they're soggy and they're gooey. They're two for 99 cents. But I mean, that, those aren't tacos. And then this is my favorite one because I took this picture. This is uh, Michelina's frozen dinner, <laughs> which... 
I mean, first of all, it's a frozen dinner, but I want you to look at this. Michelinas, right? This nice Italian grandmother on here. This is meatloaf, okay? So this is beautiful meatloaf with the gravy perfectly placed and beautiful mashed potatoes with the gravy on there. And then the top, I mean, that's what it looks like. That's what it actually looks like when you make that. Which, I mean, if the FDA were just looking through pictures, they would not classify that as food. I don't know what it is. And Michelina says here, let mama feed you, which is just <laughs> disgusting. Like, that's, I am sorry, Michelina. And I also look at this, traditional recipe. Like, if you've been looking for the traditional Italian meatloaf recipe, there it is, folks. Look no further. Traditional Italian meatloaf, you know? But here's the thing. That's just a metaphor. That's just a metaphor, That's a metaphor that we see right there, that the power is in the promise. It promises you that here is something that you can have. And it always lies. It always lies. It never delivers. And Christians are to be people that look beneath the surface, that aren't wooed by the resume or the body or the cheeseburger, but can look beneath the surface and see what's really going on in the heart. Because we're not wooed by the love of the world, by what visually stimulates the eyes. The best test of this is, the best test of if you believe that the world is all there is, or if there's eternity, the best test of if you love the world, or if you love God, the best test, if you believe the world is all there is, then you're going to invest as much as you can in the world. But if you believe there's eternity, you're going to spend a significant amount of your money not on yourself. You're going to spend it on other people. You're going to spend it on God's work. You're going to, that's what you're going to do. That's the best test. And it's an easy test. You can go online and look. And look at your statements and see where does it go. Does it go to yourself? Does it go to this world? Or does it go to other people? Does it go to God's work? Where does it go? That's one of the best tests if you believe this world is all there is. You can do that with time as well. Where do you invest your time? Next is this. The pride of life. And just so you know, these get progressively worse. That Jesus says that one of the worst sins, the worst sin, is is pride. That sometimes we can categorize the first two of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and be like, yeah, those are the bad sins. But pride, man, that's, that's where it's at. And the thing is, is if you're a proud person, you can be a really moral person. There's a lot of people that aren't Christians that are better people than Christians. You can live a really good life and be a really moral person and do a lot of good things, but it can be because this world is it, so I'm going to be the best I can be. I'm going to live my life doing as well as I can, as best as I can. Even in the church, sometimes pride doesn't get you rebuked, it gets you recognized because you might be living a great life and doing all the right things, but it's for you. It's for you to look good, for you to feel good, for you to be good. And pride can be a need for recognition, a need to be noticed, a need to be in the in crowd, a need to need to be liked, a need to be successful. Maybe we don't show other people all of ourselves, but just the best part of ourselves. That it's this whole idea of, I want me to be good. I want me to look good. That's how pride gets expressed. Pride in our lives, and if you look at even the marketing and advertising industries, they cater to that. See, it used to be back in the day when someone was selling something to you, they'd sell the product. So let's say it's a car. And they'd say, look, this is a great car. It's got great wheels. It goes fast. It gets good gas mileage. It's a good car. It's a good product. Then it switched to really selling the benefits and the features. So this will help you on a long drive because it's comfortable. This will save you money because it's got good gas mileage. And it highlighted the features and the benefits, not just the actual product specs. But now, if you have seen this, and you still have those two, but many of the advertising and marketing shifts have gone to selling an image. So these commercials that Sarah and I have seen recently... It's drive this car. This car is for the richest men in life. And it's not talking about status or or wealth. It's actually contrasting that. And it's saying, this is a car for a family man. Or this is a car that will make you timeless or classy or sexy or, or whatever it is. That it sells to an image. If you drive this, you're a successful person. If you wear this, you're a classy person. And the, the new iPhone commercials, right? The iPhone 5C. 
that's got the different colors, the whole commercial on that isn't showing you all the benefits of the iPhone at all. It doesn't tell you any of the new features. It says, an iPhone for just as colorful as a person as you are. And it goes through all these different people. And it's selling an image. It's saying, you can be this kind of person. You can be this kind of thing if you have this product in your life. And we buy it because we fall in love with the world because it says people in the world will fall in love with us. Or we fall in love with the world because it says you are important or you are special or you are timeless or you are classy or you are sexy or whatever it might be. We fall in love with the world because it tells us we can be somebody and we can feel good. But here's the thing, we know. We know we don't quite cut it. That's why we have to have a new product. That's why we have to have a a new thing all the time. That's why we've got to keep going. We're never going to feel good enough. We're never going to feel like we've arrived with pride. Pride is a bottomless pit that keeps going. You're never going to feel like you've arrived because you know deep down that you don't cut it if you're building your image on yourself. So, so where are you? Where are you? Are you building your life on a love of the world or a love of God? Are you building your life cultivating a heart for love of God or are you filling your life cultivating a love of the world? Where do you see that your general temptation is? Is it the desires of the eyes? Is it the desires of the flesh? Is it the pride of life? What, what has the power to lure you in? Some of you, I'm really encouraged to see your lives and see, man, you're making choices to build your life on a love of God. And some of you, I have concern for that it's a love of the world that you build your life on. And ultimately, it's destructive. Ultimately, it won't, it won't be, it won't lead you to be who you were designed to be. It won't lead you to be who God made you to be. So, so how do we get out of this? What's the way out of this? John says this. John says, the biggest argument against the world is that the world is passing away. The world's passing away. I mean, if you think about technology, if you think about, if you think about attractiveness, if you think about your physical self, if you think about what's cool, if you think about fashion, I mean, let me just tell you this, 20 years from now, less than that, but 20 years, 30 years from now, people are going to laugh at you. They're going to laugh at your phone and what it does and what it looks like. They're going to laugh at the clothes that you wore. I mean, we're going to laugh at ourselves, right? We do that. We look back. I cannot believe I wore that. I cannot believe I thought that. I cannot believe I did my hair like that. I cannot believe because the world is passing away. It's trends. It's technology. It's even its ideas. If you look at what is held as right and wrong, even morally, that changes with culture. If we don't ground ourselves in what's eternally true, that all that stuff is passing away. And so we all know this. We all know the world's passing away. We all know that. But there's two different ways to approach it. John doesn't say the world's passing away, so live it up, do what you want. You only live once, life is short. He says the world is passing away. It's a bankrupt company. Don't invest in it. The world is passing away, so connect to what's eternal. Connect to what's significant. Don't invest in the bankrupt company. Don't put your time and your money and your relationships investing in something that's going to pass away. Connect to eternal significance, is what John says, which is he calls doing God's will, being a part of his purposes and his mission and loving his people. That's what God says. Connect to his will so you can have eternal significance. So it's not just make your life count, make the most of your life. No, it's make the most of eternity. It's invest in eternity, not just in this world. So how do, how do we actually get drawn to God then? How do we get drawn to love God? How is it that our hearts will, will love God instead of the world? And this is the last thing we'll look at here. How does that happen? Because the world's continually wooing our desires. How can we actually love God? I don't know if you've seen this movie, but last year there was a movie called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World with Steve Carell and Keira Knightley. And the premise of the movie was that within a week's time or a week and a half, that this big asteroid was going to hit the earth and wipe everything out. It'd be gone. And it was not a hypothesis. It was scientifically confirmed. Everything, they could see it coming. And there's a countdown and all this stuff. And the world is going to be done. It's going to be over. And people do, in the beginning of the movie, everything we talked about. 
They pursue life to the fullest. They go after it hard. They, some people do everything on their bucket list that they've always wanted to do. Other people do what they've always loved. Other people have the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. And everybody just goes all out. This world is all there is. It's going away. So put everything into it. It's just everything I'm talking about heightened with a timeline. And everybody goes all out. And Kira Knightley asks Steve Carell early in the movie, so what are you going to do with the end of the world? And he says, I'm just going to catch up on some me time. And, you know, he's not going to go all out and do all these other things, but he's just going to focus on himself, which is what some of us do. But then what happens is they become friends and they fall in love and they, they end up in a relationship together and they love one another. And at the very end of the movie, in the last couple of minutes, they're laying down and the asteroids are starting to hit the earth and they can hear the noise and it's shaking things and it's, Kira Knightley starts to get scared. And she says, I thought we could have saved each other. And he says, we did. Which is to say that even if only for a few days, even if only for a few moments, life had meaning because they found a soulmate. Not because they were living it all up, not because they were building their kingdom, but because they found a soulmate. They found who they were meant for. And here's the thing. We all know that's beautiful, but God is our real soulmate. He's the one that literally made our soul and made our soul to find its purpose and its meaning in him. And Paul, in the book of Corinthians, says this. He says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Which is him saying, basically, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, man, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, YOLO. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, carpe diem. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then pursue comfort, pursue security. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then build your kingdom. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then go all out. You only live once. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then make this existence as best as it can be. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, do that. I mean, truly, if you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian, if he didn't raise from the dead, do whatever you want. Make it the best existence. Make it however you want it to be. Pursue the desires of the flesh. Pursue the desires of the eyes. Pursue the pride of life. If he didn't raise from the dead, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter. But he did. He did. And Paul says in that same book that he died, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. He says that he died for those that would then live for him. The Bible teaches that we are sinners in need of grace, that we're sinners in need of saving, that we're sinners in need of rescuing, and that Jesus died to save us. He died because we build our lives on a love of the world instead of a love of him. That we have these disordered loves where we love other things and we go after other things. And because of that, Because of that, we should be rejected by God. But instead, in his grace, he brings us into loving relationship with him where we can find meaning and connect with eternal significance. And because of that, he says, man, he died that you wouldn't live for yourself, but that you would live for him and find meaning in him. And to the degree that you understand that, to the degree that you get that he came for you, that he came to love you, that he came for your soul, to the degree that you get that and see that, then you won't just live for yourself anymore. You won't live for the world anymore. You'll live with a love of him connecting to eternal significance, following his purposes with hearts full of love. 